I'm Heidi Harris. This is the Heidi Harris Show podcast. I do this a couple of times a week. You can subscribe at iTunes or anywhere you get podcasts to Heidi Harris Show. You can also catch my live radio show weekday morning, 6 to 9 a.m. on AM 670 KMZQ in Las Vegas. As you know, Las Vegas has been shut down. It's a disaster. Hundreds of thousands of people are out of work through no fault of their own. We've got a governor who wants to lock everybody down and treat people like children because as far as I'm concerned, there are a whole lot of businesses who are fully capable of operating under very safe conditions, already do operate under very safe health guidelines, and they should be allowed to open. Anyway, Dr. Dale Carrison was the head of UMC Trauma for decades. Great guy. He's semi-retired now, but they won't really let him quit. He works up in northern Nevada now, still on the front lines dealing with these things, still training paramedics and just giving back to our amazing community. Dr. Carrison, so glad you're here. Thank you for joining me on the Heidi Harris Show podcast. Thanks, Heidi. It's my privilege to be here. So what do you think about what's going on with uh, the governor's stipulations? I'm not asking you to argue with the governor one way or the other, but I'm just trying to get an idea of where we go from here and what kind of signs we should look for before we can reopen. I mean, what are you hearing? What are you seeing? Well, you know, it's a, as you know, it's silly for me to say it's complicated because everybody knows it is complicated. Uh, and there's so much going on right now, and there's still a lot of stuff not known. And you know, as you know, the news out of California, they did an autopsy on some of the tissue that was saved from a couple of people that died, and they weren't sure why. And it turns out that COVID-19 was probably present long before we thought it was. Uh, the other part of this is we have a lot of, you know, a large number of people that are uh, testing positive that have no signs or symptoms of the disease. So that is very complex. And then just like influenza A and B, the same people are at risk. If you have what's called comorbid conditions, uh, if you're grossly obese or overweight, you have lung problems, you have heart problems, uh, you've had strokes, you're debilitated in some way. If we look at the majority of the people that have died of this disease, this virus, uh, the majority of them have what we call a comorbid medical condition. They have another medical condition in addition to be infected. And then when they get infected, they don't respond like uh, healthy people do. And it definitely has uh, a more lethal uh, outcome for those folks than it does for folks that don't have those problems. Yeah. It's real tough. We're speaking with Dr. Dale Carrison. I was reading the other day about this thing they call silent hypoxia. So people don't realize that they're oxygen deprived and they're saying that that may be a contributing factor to the deaths of people who wait too late to go in, basically. They're, they're waiting until the last minute. They think they're okay and then boom. And then within days, they're they're dead in some cases. Have you heard about that? Have you seen that, experienced that? Uh, yes. And in, 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 in the... Uh everybody's discussing this now on the medical uh, lines, you know, as you might imagine why the, the uh, computer is uh, humming. Uh, American College of Emergency Physicians has a daily update. Every day they update everything. They summarize all the different questions, suggestions, all the emergency physicians all over the United States, Canada, the world essentially get together and discuss, you know, what works, what doesn't work, because you know, the emergency physicians, emergency nurses, and all the people in the emergency departments are on the front line. And then when the patients get admitted, you know, the ICU nurses are the ones that uh, have to go through that process of watching these people die. So uh, obviously that's a, a huge, huge event emotionally. So the, the question is, 
what is the self-limiting factor of this? So when they started looking at the lungs, the first thing, you know, known for many years, you put people on their stomachs, and uh, it takes uh, some of the pressure off the diaphragm, and so it makes it easier to breathe. So they started looking at the pulmonary part of this or the lungs, and found out that a lot of these people, it's like if you and I went to 10,000 feet or we're going to climb Mount Everest and you're up above 12,000 feet, you're what we call hypoxic, which means your body doesn't have enough oxygen, but your heart and everything is still working, so it's pumping your blood through your body. So you have what we call perfusion. So you're perfusing, but you're not oxygenating. So... The question was, should we innovate those people right away or should we just give them a supplemental oxygen? And as you mentioned, some of them stay at home like that. And the reason that's interesting is because as long as they don't move around, they do fairly well with a lack of oxygen. Their, their saturations, which we measure oxygen by in the body, are low. But when they get up and move, then they do what we call desaturate. So any movement, they don't get enough oxygen because their lungs aren't functioning right. And then that's when, that's when you know, you get hypoxic and you, so to speak, crash and burn. Wow. So that's why it's important to, if you have that feeling, if you get up and you're suddenly short of breath with any, any kind of movement or exercise and, you know, you're not feeling good, uh, they just came out with another thing about all the different symptoms and essentially... It's pretty much all the symptoms. Uh, the cough is interesting because it's more of a dry cough, uh, as different kinds of pneumonia. You know, have you, you? The doctor always asks you what color is your sputum. So it is an interesting virus with a different part, and it's all going to come together because there's so much information out there, and with the information technology we have today, people are going to be able to share that information, which. The physicians all over the world are sharing and then try to figure out, okay, what do we do, what works, what doesn't work, uh, is there a vaccine, and, you know, that's a whole other subject too. But uh, it's just we continue to learn on a daily basis about this disease. It's crazy, isn't it? We're speaking with Dr. Dale Carrison. I also uh, read a little bit about oximeters. They're saying that if people have those little things that, for people who don't know, those are the things that you attach to your finger. I've got a relative who's got pulmonary issues, so this relative has to have one of those to measure the level of oxygen in your blood. And some people are saying if you get a good reading on that, that might be an indication that you're going into hypoxia. What are your thoughts about that, doctor? Well, I've carried one of those. You know, as you know, I was a tactical physician. I went out with the SWAT teams and. Uh, we all carried those. Uh, each individual physician carried those and the paramedics. So you, you can just put it right on your finger and tell what your oxygen saturation is. Uh, saturations above 90 are pretty good. Uh, now, if you're, you know, uh, a child and you're completely healthy, your saturations are probably 98, 99, even up to 100 without breathing fast. Uh, adults, as we age, our lungs age, and it goes down a little bit. But we really start to worry when it gets uh, around 90 and starts going below. The key that would help that, that little device, which is called a pulse oximeter, and it simply measures, it, it measures the blood as it goes under. It has a little light in it, and it calculates your oxygen saturation based on the color. So anyway, this little pulse oximeter goes on there. It gives you your pulse rate, and it gives you your oxygenation, what your saturation percentage is. So 
key with that is, one, of course, the low percentage, if it's there, and the other is if you get up and walk around and say you were 92 or 93, you got up and walk around and went down to, you know, 82 or 83, okay. then you should worry. That makes because sense. Because that's called desaturation. That makes sense. We're speaking with Dr. Dale Carrison. I'm also reading that these ventilators aren't the answer. There, there are some places where 90% of the people who've been ventilated have died. And of course, it's tough to tell because maybe these people would have died anyway. Uh, we don't really know. But, you know, I've, I've read stories of people who've been on ventilators for weeks. I'm not a doctor. You are. But I remember when my mom had to be on one a few years back, the doctors were freaked out that she was on one for even more than a few days. They were desperate to get her off of it uh, very quickly. I thought that was a big focus, and now we're reading about people on ventilators for weeks, and this is going to take a long time to recover from, if ever, right? It takes a huge amount of time to recover from, especially people that already have existing lung disease, like what we call COPD or chronic, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. COPD, emphysema is common, because what happens when you're on that ventilator, it's like any other muscle. When you don't use a muscle, the muscle goes away. So when you're on the ventilator for prolonged periods of time, your diaphragm muscle is the one that, uh, when it contracts, it allows the lungs to expand, and that's how you breathe. So when you're on the ventilator for a long time, that muscle, essentially, you can think that muscle gets weak, and then it doesn't work, and then you have to build people up and have to start having them breathe on their own slowly. So, yes, in answer to really the first question there, uh, there's a whole different consideration now with early, early intubation. So they're kind of going away from that. Early oxygenation is different than early intubation. So as you mentioned, a lot of people die on that now. Would it make any difference? Well, the people that get intubated are the people that are the sickest. So, you know, that has to be considered. Yeah, it's hard to tell. I mean, you can't really decide one way or the other, right? You know, would they have died anyway? That's the hard, hard question to answer. Exactly. And, uh, you know, dying is dying. Uh, you know, we see this. Uh, for those of us who uh, are physicians and have worked in emergency care and uh, in hospitals and taking care of patients for many, many years, you know, we've seen the whole gamut of this. And it's just like the kids with the flu. There were so many, you know, over... 150 children this year that died of influenza A and B, you know, which is a tragedy, no less a tragedy. But if I'm 95 and I die, to me personally, that's less of a tragedy than if my 15-year-old granddaughter or great-granddaughter dies. That's a totally different deal. So uh, I think when we talk about this disease and we see how many people it's affecting, most of the people are the people that have other medical problems. I say that again. Now, once in a while, you'll have a tragic story of a baby or a young person that dies. But you can also look at the young people that die, and some of those, some of those individuals also had other medical problems. That's true. They could be in their 30s, but they've got some underlying issues or, or they smoked. I mean, we're hearing, too, about obviously smokers. We know that's an issue. Diabetes, we know is an issue. Weight's an issue. And we're also hearing about vaping, things like that, because clearly vaping is something that can make your lungs weak, right? It, it, yeah, they're just, you know, stuff isn't fully developed and whatever, and we're healthy. And uh, I think you, you can't help but mention, you know, the evening news is no offense to anyone, but the evening news is more like New York City news. And, so uh, true, so I, I think true. one of the biggest problems with that that people have to recognize is that small area, literally small, 
States in comparison to other major cities in the United States has an enormous population. And we know that putting people that are sick in close contact with people who are not sick, the people that are not sick are going to have a much higher rate of sickness than if you're in an area that's spread out, which, you know, is the whole logic behind this, you know, social distancing. And when you can you imagine if you've been in New York and ridden in a subway, you know, you're you're shoulder to shoulder with hundreds of people. So any disease that's there is going to spread rapidly through the population. And, of course, that makes it a disaster for New York because, you know, that's why they're seeing so many people. Uh, you know, one of the one of the big contributing factors to that was the, the ability that they did not have to social distance initially. Now, of course, we're working on that now and trying to see it. And the next big question will be, is there going to be a second wave? And, uh, I don't think anybody really has the answer to that. They try to look at history and say there was a second wave with the Spanish flu. Well, this one is a little different than that. and They're all a little different in some way. And I don't think we're going to really know until we get there. We're speaking with Dr. Dale Carrison. I agree, and I agree with what you said about New York. You know, the entire country shouldn't function because New York is overpopulated and they're all jammed on top of each other. That's an entirely different situation than you certainly have up there where you are in northern Nevada or rural Nevada or rural a lot of places in America. So it's incredibly frustrating to me that we would base policy on that. So as far as shutting down the city or the state forever. You know, Carolyn Goodman wants to open everything up. It's not that she wants to be irresponsible. She just believes that business owners should be able to open a business responsibly. And it would seem to me, and I'm not asking you to get political one way or the other, but it would seem to me if you're a small business and you can assure your clientele that you can open and be responsible, a jewelry store, you know, one person at a time or a hair salon or, or something like that, and you can assure your clientele you can do it safely, is that a bad thing? I mean, we can still go to Walmart. We can still go to Lowe's and Home Depot. What's the difference, doctor? Well, as I've said many times, you can die of a car accident. You can die. You can die because somebody shot you or stabbed you, and you've been murdered. Uh, you can die from any number of illnesses. You can die from the flu. We're over 24,000 that are dead from the flu this year, and now we're dying from COVID. But I think uh, Carolyn's point, the mayor's point, is one for me: when you're dead, you're dead. It doesn't matter how you got there; you're still dead. <laughs> That's the end. You know, you're dead. We're all going there. Nobody's getting out alive. So what is the risk and benefit? And as a physician, I always look at the risk and benefit. You know, is, is the risk of giving you a medicine that could be dangerous better than the benefit or the possible benefit? I don't know. That, and that's what we judge. So if you look at that, I absolutely agree that if people are responsible, then I think there are certain businesses that have been forced to close down that could definitely be open. Now, do I want, you know, several thousand people on a subway shoulder to shoulder? I don't think that's good. I think that spreads disease. And the other part that we, we haven't addressed that should be addressed is there's a vaccine available for influenza. Okay, this year it was, uh, I think, 47% effective. Okay. In the United States of America, people 18 and older, only 37% chose to get a flu shot. So that means 63% of the people didn't. So uh, now, are we going to force that on people? And you know, when I heard this, like they're going to have to have documentation that you you have A, B, C, or D, and so you can travel. 
That's ridiculous. This is the United States of America. This is a free country. It's a democratic republic. And we have to respect our Bill of Rights and our Constitution. And I think when the dust settles in this, there are going to be an enormous number of suits involving this issue. And I'm going to have to agree with the mayor on some level that there are businesses right now that could be open, that could be act responsible, and they put people at no more risk than they are going to get their groceries or anything else right now. Yeah, I would agree. So I, I think yeah. we have to consider that. And, again, risk versus benefit. When I looked at the lines of cars waiting to get food, those are people that don't have food. They're hungry. Right. So if you die from starving to death, you're just as dead as you die from COVID-19. That's still true. Dead. We're still dead. And, and I think yeah. we need to have a – I think there should be a logical national discussion in regard to this. And uh, – you know, as I told someone the other day, it's the first political virus I've ever seen in my in my lifetime, and it's a shame because it stopped people from working together, talking together, and figuring out solutions together instead of just having a uh, iron fist kind of policies for that we not even certain work completely. Mm-hmm. We we know that washing your hands, not sneezing and coughing in front of someone, and Limiting your respiratory outcome, you know, when you sneeze and cough, to not affect other people. We know that works. That's effective. Okay? It's been effective for me for years as a physician. I wash my hand after every patient. I wash my hand before every patient. And I don't get sick. Right. And I think we have to consider that because it's a huge, it's a huge part of our society. And when we take our basic freedoms away, in the name of something we're not even certain what exactly works, I think we're going down a slippery slope. I think so. What, final question. Are these, do people who take flu shots, are they doing better during this? I realize that the flu shot's based on last year's strain and you, it's not always effective, but do, you, do we have any data on people who've had flu shots and how they do with COVID-19, if it has any effect on people at all? No, I don't, I don't think there is any data yet on the flu shots to do that because there's a lot of comorbid stuff, that, which means you can have two things. Right. There are people with influ- that are testing positive for COVID and influenza A. That's a double whammy. So, again, it's just like our testing. Until everybody gets tested and the statistics are all in, we're absolutely not going to know for certain. We do know that the flu killed a lot of people this year, and we do know that the Flu shot was 47% effective this year. The other part we do know about flu shots that people should think of, even if you get the flu, it shortens the course of the flu. And if you have comorbid conditions, the people who get very sick from regular influenza A and B do better, have better outcomes if they've had the influenza shot. That's great. Dr. Kerrison, talk to me, tell me real quickly what you're doing up there in Northern Nevada. I mean, 30 years at UMC, you ran the hospital, you ran the emergency department forever, and you just can't get away from it. You're still, and I'm so glad you are, still contributing so heavily up there in Northern Nevada. Talk to me about what you're doing with the rural areas and the paramedics, because that's really important. Well, Western Nevada College uh, had an EMT program. You know, you have an EMT basic, and they have an advanced EMT, and then you have paramedicine, which is an EMT that has now become a paramedic. Uh, It's a long course. It takes a lot of education. And one of my commitments in rural Nevada, when I was chairman of Nevada's Commission on Homeland Security, I I, I saw firsthand that the lack of resources that some of our 
some of our rural counties have. And one of the huge resources we don't have in rural Nevada is uh, available medicine. You know, we've got some terrific uh, rural hospitals out there doing a great job. But, you know, how do you get to the hospital? And who comes and sees you? Who can come and give you a breathing treatment? And those are paramedics. Those are people who are on the front line right now with the COVID. But so I thought it was important and uh, uh, I was asked by uh, uh, one former uh, state senator, Dennis Nolan, who's with the uh, Reno Fire Department now, and asked me if I would be interested in being the medical director for Western Nevada College. And, of course, I jumped at the chance. I have a terrific paramedic uh, instructor coordinator who's, really does the most of the work, you know, I, I, I don't take credit for what's all been done, and uh, the president of Western Nevada College and his uh, his number two man and, and the dean of the Allied Health who has run the nursing program for years, you know, they're all terrific people. So they've been turning out nurses and uh, advanced EMTs and that, but there was a deed for paramedicine, which is uh, fairly advanced medicine in rural Nevada, and they can do a lot of things to help a lot of patients, you know, with heart attacks, with trauma, with uh, diabetic comas, with infectious, uh, precipitous childbirth, just any number of things that paramedics do. And we felt that by turning out more paramedics, having more availability and somewhat closer to the rurals by being in Carson City, that we could have an impact on uh, the rural medicine. So that's why I took that job, because I just... You know, I, it's in my heart. I think the world of paramedics, I'm an emergency physician, and uh, I, I support the paramedics in the field. And some of the finest men and women you've ever met, uh, not just with the fire departments, but with the private ambulance companies. And they are unusual people because they don't get paid anywhere near what they're worth. Yeah, isn't that true? Well, I, I love your appreciation for them, and I love that you're still giving back to the state because we definitely need you. So great to talk to you. Thanks for taking time with me, Dr. Dale Carrison. We will talk again as these crazy times warrant. All right, Heidi, thank you so much. And remind everybody, don't cough on anybody, don't sneeze on anybody, and wash your hands. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you, doctor. I'm Heidi Harris. Subscribe to these podcasts anywhere you get podcasts, Heidi Harris Show. You can also catch my live radio show, 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. on KMZQ. That's 670 a.m. KMZQ, of course. And if you don't live in Vegas, you can listen live online on a link at HeidiHarris.com. You can also pick up my books, and I've put podcasts up there, as I mentioned. And also, I do some blog posts and things like that. So check out HeidiHarris.com. Until we meet again, remember, aren't you glad politicians aren't in charge of our future? I swear, if I thought they were, I wouldn't get out of bed. And remember that you were created for a purpose. Here's Tony Scott.